So if you could create any kingdom that you wanted, what would it look like? And meaning, you know, you could do whatever you want. What would it look like? And then once you have established that, uh, what position would you take in it? King, right? But, uh, you know, this becomes... A, a, a thorough, well, not thorough, but a um, a common issue throughout the scripture uh, from beginning to end. Uh, God has a designed kingdom for men, and there's a king, and then there are the rest. That, you know, the the people in the world who either don't want it or you know, they uh, maybe kind of want it, but want some of it, want the benefits of it. And, you know, this is, it becomes one of the things where Christians are motivated and what our motivation really is. And if your motivation is reward, which isn't a bad motivation depending on if you understand what those rewards are about. So can you imagine yourself with the rewards of the kingdom of God and the only thing you want are those rewards? Like they're the most important thing. And the king, the ways of the kingdom, you know, the laws of the kingdom, what the kingdom's all about, those things, yeah, they're fine. But, you know, the rewards now, now we're talking. And... And therefore, it's not really his kingdom that you want. It's really something that might look a little bit like his, but it's really yours. So when the Lord was at the very beginning of his ministry, as we know, the Holy Spirit led him into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Actually, this is before his ministry really begins. It's directly after his baptism. And in, the, in one of the temptations, uh, in Matthew and Luke, there are three, the same three temptations are presented, but they're in different orders. And in Luke's account, it says that the devil led him up, showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said to him, I'll give you all of this domain and its glory, for it has been given to me, delivered to me, or handed over to me, and I can give it to whoever I wish. Whoever I desire, I can give this to. Therefore, if you worship before me, I shall be your, it shall be yours. And, you know, so of course Jesus says, well, he doesn't say no. In every one of these temptations, Jesus quotes the scripture. And in this quotation, he says, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. See, now that's a kingdom. Satan offers him the kingdoms of the world that have been uh, given to him. Notice he didn't earn them. They were given to him. And, and, and Jesus says, look, there's, there's one you shall worship. It's the Lord your God. Serve him only. And I'm serving him. And I'm a servant here. And that's the kingdom that I'm after. And that's the kingdom that I'm going to bring to mankind. But it's a kingdom where the members are servants. Doesn't that sound odd? 
Because the kingdom that everybody wants is what? I mean, I don't want to build a kingdom and then be a slave in it. (laughs) Can you imagine the elites of our world who are trying to build the kingdom in which what? They're the slaves that are out serving everybody? I mean, actually, that's how our founding fathers designed said kingdom. We didn't call it a kingdom, but it wasn't the kingdom of George. You know, they wanted to make George Washington king, and he wouldn't accept that. But, you know, a kingdom of servants, what in the world is that? Well, it's, a, it's this world's kingdoms upside down. And, and when the king came into this world, uh, he came in as what? Infant in a manger in a nowhere place called Bethlehem. And the earthly king, Tiberius at the time, who was in Rome, who was, you know, the God, you know, had everything and was all powerful, emperor. And uh, the contrast between the two, who, who also accepted worship as God, that Caesar did at that time, there was Caesar worship. And the contrast is amazing. So my point is, you know, for us now, what kind of kingdom do we want? I notice, if you notice here when Satan says, uh, uh, sorry, it has been handed over to me and I give it to whoever I wish. That's bragging, isn't it? It's like, I look, Jesus, I have this kingdom and I can give it to whoever I wish. And Jesus, the servant, is going to give the kingdom to those who he dies for, who believe in him. So, now it turns to us again. Who or what do you worship? Because Jesus said here, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. What you worship will determine what kind of kingdom you value. It's not just in the rewards. Of course there has to be rewards in such a kingdom. In God's kingdom. Has to be, of course. And there is, you know, we're told. But the you know, it's what do you worship? Do you worship yourself? Do you worship and, and honestly say that's what Satan wants. Correct. Bow down and worship me. That's what he wants. That's what the people of the world and the world's kingdoms want. To be worshipped. And this is the plight of mankind. Now as believers, we're still tempted to it. And that's why we're studying this. Because, uh, you know, and and I've got to pray before. I'll just keep going here because I'm on a roll. And, uh, you know, this is turned, it it leaves being an introduction and becomes something else. So let's turn in our Bibles to uh, Luke Yeah, Luke 21. And let's begin with prayer and thank God for our time together. As we pray, we set ourselves and our minds ready uh, to hear God's word, to be um, in conjunction with him, uh, ready to learn whatever the word of God has to speak and say to us today. So with that, let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for your word and that through your word we see these marvelous truths. They are abundant in many throughout the text that you have preserved for thousands of years, which 
as God who is all-powerful is no sweat to you, but that it has been given to us and that we must learn it and understand it amongst all the distractions and things that we're tempted to. It doesn't become so easy for us. But we know, Father, that as our Lord, your Son, said, His yoke is easy. We just have to give our burdens to Him. And so as we lay down our burdens right now and come to you and seek the yoke that is the truth, that truth is easy and light because Christ has accomplished it all. So, Father, as your children who have been so blessed, we ask that through your Spirit that we would be taught your word in clarity and understanding. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. So Jesus is uh, in this, we're in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, we've got uh, Paul revealing things about the tribulation. The, uh, that period which comes after the church is a period that uh, is revealed throughout the scripture, really with the prophets and onward. And it's revealed by our Lord, and that's why we're in the Gospels here for a bit. And But you must understand that what Paul is revealing in 2 Thessalonians in our passage is not, his purpose is not to give us details about what's in the tribulation. That's not the purpose of why he's writing it. Hence, as I was tempted to do the details of the tribulation, I think I'm going to hold off here. Because it's really not the purpose of the letter that we're studying. The purpose of the letter of 2 Thessalonians is encouragement. It's encouragement to believers. And, and to, we would say, well, if I'm not going to go through the tribulation, how could knowing about it give me encouragement? But it's the encouragement of, that comes from knowing your place in God's entire program and, and knowing what that program is about, meaning human history. There is a purpose to everything that happens every single day. In God's kingdom. He is sovereign. And I mean in the world kingdom. God, the, the Bible, by the way, presents God as king over everything. It, it's, the theologians call it the universal kingdom of God. Uh, and, you know, as God is in control of all things, there is a purpose in everything that he does. God called out Abraham. And through Abraham, established through a family, he established a kingdom or a nation. You can call it a house as well. And his house was comprised of 12 tribes, 12 houses. And God chose one of those houses to bear to be the ruling house, which is the house of Judah. He picked specifically, not specifically, Specifically, out of that house, one king, David, and said, through your son, your son will have an eternal kingdom. And that son wasn't Solomon, although Solomon would build the first permanent house. Well, not so much permanent because it was destroyed, but uh, a solid house. Solomon would be the one to build that. And all of that becomes very significant. And, and throughout the Bible, you know, this, this temple and this house in Jerusalem is not just some kind of, you know, temporary thing while God establishes the permanent house. It has great meaning. Everything does. 
And you can, I mean, we have an omniscient God who has orchestrated everything. Right? It's the perfect symphony of which every note, every instrument, every movement is perfectly designed to reveal something. Um, now, where we are, you know, as we move away from Second Thessalonians, we want to see, you know, why is Paul bringing up this man of lawlessness, or as Jesus calls him, the abomination of desolation in the temple, and, you know, makes his stand and proclaims to be God. We find him in Revelation chapter 13 where he, where he shows up, and, and also in Daniel and through the prophets, and he has multiple titles. And, and you know, why is this here? And it's, you know, it, it's Paul is revealing to the Thessalonians that, you know, that time is coming, and that time, when it comes, is going to be the wrath of God upon the earth. It's going to be the most horrible, uh, deplorable, awful time the earth has ever experienced. In terms of violence, both physical and mental torture that is going to come from the wrath of God upon uh, not just his client nation Israel, but upon the nations of the world, and upon, specifically upon sin. And Paul says to the Thessalonians, you have not gone there, nor will you be there. But it's important to understand that while we're in this time, that is a build-up to that time, because everything that Jesus says are like birth pangs. They ask him, when are you coming? He's going to say, well, it's going to look like this. And he, he gives signs. And these signs, we've seen them always. Wars, rumors of wars, nation against nation. That's always been. And then we have the world wars. We say, well, there it is. You know, there is truly nation against nation. But. That's come and gone, and there's been no rapture, no building of the temple, no beast, no tribulation. Not yet. And so what Paul says to the Thessalonians is applying to us, that we live in a world that's building up to this moment, and that wrathful time that is to come, that has a real purpose, we're living in the birth pangs that lead up to it. And so we're, of course, going to experience the rottenness of war, the rottenness of selfishness. You know, what creates wars? The selfishness of man. We're, of course, going to be influenced and hurt by greed and, and lawlessness and apostasy and on top of that, we're going to be tempted to go into it. And we have to deal with all of that. So when Jesus begins to teach about this, he's entered, it's, it's significant that it's his final week. It's his final week on earth. So mankind... As you know, and, and when Jesus enters this week, his what we call the Passion Week, he enters into Jerusalem on the back of the colt. This is prophesied to him by Zechariah, and he enters. I guess we could call it triumphantly, although he he pauses over the city and weeps. 
and says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, if you only knew what this day, how this day could mean peace for you. If you only knew. But you don't. And then he prophesies there that you'll be you'll be trampled. You're going to be destroyed. He's saying that while they're all shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, blesses he who comes in the name of the Lord. Right? The drama of God. <laughs> it's incredible. And during this final week, you know, he's, he's coming to his own people, and his own people have rejected him in favor of another kingdom. Even though they're wearing the robes and the garb, and even, ironically, the the high priest who is there, he's uh, Annas, and Caiaphas, his name's Annas. He has a, he wears, when he's wearing his turban in the temple, there's a gold plate on that that says, holy to the Lord. And he's going to condemn the Holy One. The drama of God. <laughs> it's all throughout. Like, it's like the most exciting, most, um, so many ironic twists and turns. So why has humanity? I mean, this is the question we're getting after. And it's something that is so applicable to us because, I mean, what believer still doesn't have selfishness within them? And I hope and I pray that your selfishness is steadily declining. But it's never going to absolutely be so far away from you that you'll never be tempted by it again. Why has humanity been so foolish so as to seek for a kingdom that will only kill them in the end, either by their own decisions or, in fact, be killed. Lustful, self-serving sinners will continue to pursue the devil's kingdom. And we're all born this way. Hence, uh, Satan has had a easy and probably, for him, joyful time in establishing a kingdom that fits sinners lustful, self-serving sinners. And we're all born this way. And God, to every one of us, graciously holds out and patiently holds out His own kingdom and offers it without cost. Not cost to us, all the cost to Him. And the cost must be made plain. That is a part of the Gospel. That Jesus Christ is the one who paid the price so that we could be free, so that we could enter his kingdom of glory for eternity and have eternal security, not of works, but of faith. And so God holds this out, but he cannot force any one of us to enter it. He cannot torture any one of us to enter it. We must choose it. And so he guides us. And so many, I don't know how many, I hope it's fewer than I think, Say no. Remember Jesus? Jesus said as he left the temple, how often I wanted to gather you like a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were unwilling. Here, this is uh, Solomon's son, Rehoboam, who, Rehoboam in Second Chronicles chapter 12, verse 13, was 41 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 17 years in Jerusalem. The city which the Lord had chosen from all the tribes of Israel to put his name there. Right? See, that, that's the significance of this place. 
Is it like the most, even God writes poems about how Zion is small compared to all the other mountains around it. And in Psalm 68, uh, 68, God says, Oh, great mountains in the north, why are you so jealous of Zion? And he says, It's because I put my name there. I chose it. The place where Abraham sacrificed Isaac. The place where David bought a threshing floor after he failed miserably. And the angel of the Lord was killing by the thousands because of David's stupid decision. And that angel has his sword out. And David buys this threshing floor, offers the sacrifice, and bows and repents. And then God says, all right, angel, put your sword away. Only after 70,000 people were killed. That threshing floor is the very site on which the temple would be built. David the king, his failure. God, the forgiver, who builds his temple on the site of the sin. Right? I want to gather you under my wings, the wings of the cherubim over the mercy seat where the blood is poured. This is where God wants to call us in, into his kingdom based on grace, based on the death of Christ. And so we enter this kingdom not as kings, but as servants Now, we are royalty by birth, by new birth. You know, when it says King of Kings and Lord of Lords, that's an ancient world title. It doesn't necessarily mean that we're all kings and queens. We are heirs. But every one of us must never forget that we're servants. Now, Rehoboam, he did evil because he did not set his heart to seek the Lord. He was terrible. He was awful, like so many of them were. The kingdom has his name on it. That's what makes it a kingdom. So, this message, as we speak of it, is applicable to us because as believers, we're not talking about unbelievers in this, obviously, because we're a church of believers. And the reason is that we, we need to go over it and over it is because we're temptable as believers. Rehoboam here on the board in Second Chronicles and so many other kings had the privilege and opportunity to excel by seeking the Lord. That's all they had to do. And we have the opportunity of reading them about them over and over again. We can read about the good kings. There aren't many of them, but there are a few. And we can read about the bad ones and why they were bad. So as we saw uh, last time, Jesus leaves the temple for the last time in Matthew 23, and he forsakes the temple. He said, your temple is left your house. He didn't say temple, but your, your house is left to you desolate. And then he ascends the Mount of Olives with his disciples, and his disciples draw Jesus' attention to how beautiful the temple is. This same temple that Jesus said has been left to you desolate, the disciples not really getting it, noticing how beautiful the temple is, and it was. But what Jesus is looking at is not the stonework of the temple, but the people that are inside it. The hearts of those who are inside that temple are deplorable. And so Jesus said it will be destroyed. There is no beauty there. 
And when he prophesies that, the disciples ask him four questions. And this is the Olivet Discourse. When will these things be? What are the sign that they're coming? What is the sign of your coming? And what is the sign of the end of the age? And they ask all four of those questions. And, of course, Jesus doesn't answer them in order. He answers the last one first. (laughs) And then he answers the first one, and then he answers the middle ones. Uh, And uh, we run all over the Gospels trying to make sense of it all, which we can as much, as far as we can, we can make sense of his answers. But what we can't glean from the answers, because he doesn't include them, is some kind of timetable. We just can't do it. Nobody can. And he does that on purpose. There's a reason why the very first generation in the church heartily expected the Lord. I'll give you a, it's a much later slide. Come on now. Where are you? Clement. Clement writes, it's 95 AD, right? This is almost at the end. This is just about the time that John the Apostle is writing the book of Revelation. So this is very, very early in the church, and he says, Of a truth, soon and suddenly shall his will be accomplished, as the scriptures also bear witness, saying, Speedily he will come, and he will not tarry. And the Lord shall suddenly come to his temple, even the Holy One for whom you look. And Clement, and this is applicable to us, that Clement is writing this epistle to the Corinthians, the very church that Paul wrote what we think four letters to the Corinthians. Only two were published. And they were, Clement is writing to them because they're still into the same shenanigans they were when Paul wrote to them. And what is Clement after? It's a beautiful epistle that he writes to them. And and he's trying, he's using the coming of the Lord to say, look, straighten up. That's what Jesus says to us. Straighten up and look for me. I'm coming quickly. Be the good steward, not the unfaithful one. You don't know when I'm coming. And Clement says the same thing to them. And hence the application of the age that we're in and the age to come. And the age that was. You know, Wherever we find ourselves in the age of ages of God is that In the final end, there is a perfect kingdom that is of holiness and righteousness and justice, and we're members of it right now. And just as Paul's going to tell us in 2 Thessalonians, we want you to understand that the wrath of God is coming upon the earth because, and, and for the reason that, you have the glory of God in you, and you must show that glory to the world. It is vitally important that we who are not of the wrath, that we shine our light to the world. And that's the point that he's going to make. Despite the persecutions, it's Thessalonians. There's a huge amount of persecution among the Thessalonians. And Paul doesn't tell them, hey, find a way to end the persecution. No, he says, keep enduring it and let your light shine. Let the glory of Christ that's in you shine amongst them. The world. Because it's a dark world and it's getting darker. And so that's why, uh, getting back to here, sorry. Okay. <laughs> um, that the answers to these questions are so important to us. 
So he answers the last question first, and that's similar in all three Gospels. That's important to know because that's the age that we're in. This is the birth pangs. So in all three Gospels, as you see up here, this, this discourse is in Matthew 24 and 25, Luke 21, and Mark 13, that he calls these birth pangs, uh, wars and rumors of wars, nation shall rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom, There'll be famines and earthquakes, pestilences, terrors, and signs from heaven. I may say, well, we haven't experienced signs from heaven. But when you think about, you know, a sign, it could mean a miracle, but it also could mean a sign. And uh, who knows? I'm not going to throw my chips into any pile there. (laughs) Because he's, in my book, in my book is my opinion, so take it as much that he's purposely being vague. Vague enough. I mean, he's not being completely vague. But he knows what he's saying, obviously. He's God. And he could just spell out a clear program and tell us every little bit about it. And he doesn't. Hence, and that's why I went back to Clement. Why is Clement expecting Christ to come back and the next generation, the next generation, in the Middle Ages, and in the, the Reformation, and, and, and here, and in America, and, and all, all over. And every generation of the church has all of, have all of us said this is, this is the time. Because the birth pangs that he gives and the signs that he gives fit every generation. And it's meant for that. We're all to be looking. So he answers the third, the last question first, and then in Luke he answers the first question. And we looked at that on Sunday, the destruction of the temple and the signs that accompany the temple. And there's some miraculousness. Just to remind that Jesus said the sign would be that the army surrounds Jerusalem. And we would say, well, no, duh, that's a pretty obvious sign. But what he doesn't say, when he says flee to the mountains, he does not reveal that the army was going to leave and then come back. That there'd be a window of like a whole year. They they made the siege in 66. They leave because the supply lines are not good enough. And then they come back somewhere around 68. So there's like a year gap where this message from Jesus to any believer in the tribulation, at that time, sorry, not the tribulation, any believer in 67 AD who's living in Jerusalem, could hear those words, read those words, and say, you know what? I need to get out of Dodge. Jesus doesn't tell him that. But when the time comes, it's going to be obvious. I think the same will be true with all eschatology. So then Jesus refers to the tribulation, and particularly the second half of the tribulation where he says in Matthew 24, 29, but immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from the sky and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Look at Luke 21, 25. Parallel passage to the one that's on the board. There will be signs and sun and moon and stars uh, and that will be the darkness on the earth that you see there in Matthew 24 on the board, 24, 29. 
And on the earth, dismay among nations. You bet there's going to be. If everything all of a sudden goes dark, meaning day and night. On the earth, dismay among nations and perplexity at the roaring of the sea and the waves. Men fainting from fear and the expectation of the things which are coming upon the world. For the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then they will see... Then, then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with, great, with power and great glory. He would repeat this at his trial, that you'll see the Son of Man coming in the clouds in glory. And it was that, when he said that, that the high priest tore his robes and said, what more witnesses do we need? Um, and so this is the sign he's answering, the, you know, the, uh, the question of what will be the sign of your coming. Well, here it is. And we have not experienced this, correct. Uh, the darkness on the earth is prophesied in Joel 2, 1 and 2 for the day of the Lord. Not just here, there's several passages about the fact that the tribulation will experience darkness. And it's a time of darkness. And that, that in imagery, the, the true darkness that God is going to bring upon the earth is, is truly his response to the darkness of evil and sin that have rejected him and that people have rejected him. In Joel 2, 1 and 2, for the day of the Lord is coming, surely it is near, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. And so, uh, and then he's going to teach about his coming and then the Lord is going to mention the fact that no one knows the day or the hour. And that I'm coming at a time you don't expect. And that, to us, sounds like rapture. And all evidence points to that. And then he goes into some parables. And then he speaks about the very end, uh, the, the, his second coming. Uh, and, you know, all of that, all of it is of great interest to us. But to grab hold of it, what I want to do is go back a bit in time. Is that all of this happens in the same day. All of this teaching, it has got to be the longest day of his earthly life. And this hugely busy day, and it's our Lord's final offering of the kingdom to Israel, even though he knows that they're going to reject it. He knew years ago that they were rejecting it. And, or at least a year ago, somewhere around halfway through his ministry in Matthew 12, when they said... You do your miracles by the power of the devil. He said, this sin, what you've just said, is not forgivable. And it meant, what he meant there was that this place will be destroyed now. And that was their ultimate, they rejected him. And he knew that they rejected him. But still, you see, why does, if Jesus knows he's rejected, why does he still offer the kingdom to him? Why does he still ride in on the cult? First and foremost, it's prophesied that he would. But why is it prophesied is because judicially, even though God is rejected, he's going to offer the kingdom to them. And you see, that's just like the unlimited atonement, where Christ is going to die for all the sins of the world, and he's going to offer salvation to them, even though he knows they're going to say no. He knew Israel would say no. Now, so... When he enters on the cult, we call it the Passion Week. It depends on you know whether you're a 
crucifixion on Wednesday, Thursday, or Friday person. I personally am a Friday person, not because I was brought up Catholic. But uh, but anyway, you know, it's a it's still a con- in contention what day that is. But um, for a number of days, Christ is going to teach. He doesn't teach every day, but on this day, he's going to start teaching. Not just this day, but he's going to when he on this final week of his life presenting himself to Israel, he's going to largely teach in parables. And these are a new series of parables. There's a parable of the two sons, very simple one. Uh, uh, Landowner, vineyard owner, tells both sons to go work in the vineyard. One does, one doesn't. There's the parable of the wicked vine growers. So a man makes a vineyard and he goes away, and then he sends his slaves back to collect the rent, and they kill them. And then he sends more, and they kill them. And then he says, I know, I'll send my son. They'll respect him. And they kill him. Then there's the king's marriage feast. That's the parable where you know, all are invited in or all given clothes. And then they find one guy in there who doesn't have wedding clothes. And it's, how did you get in here? Then there's the parable of the fig tree. It bears its leaves. And then you know that summer is coming. Uh, the faithful and unfaithful servants. It's where the master leaves the house in charge of servants. And some are faithful and some are not. The parable of the ten virgins and the parable of the talents. So these are his parables by which he teaches. These parables present a composite picture of the kingdom as something future. So take like the parable of the fig, the fig tree. You see the leaves, you know he says summer is coming. Right? This is obvious to everybody who knows a fig tree. I'm not very familiar with them. <laughs> I have seen one. There's there's a really nice one, a couple of them in Oregon Gardens, where Chris and I have gone a few times. Actually, I've been there where the figs are ripe, and I've plucked one off. I don't know if I was allowed to, but I plucked one off and ate it. It was quite delicious. But um, you know, to them in the Middle East, you know, this is an obvious thing. Um, yeah, the master leaves the house and leaves it in charge of servants. Some are faithful and they don't know when the master's coming back. Right? Like these parables all speak of a future kingdom. We say, well, has Christ, wait a minute. They have to reject him first. They already did. They already did. I mean, the cli- they already had throughout his ministry, but the climax of it was when the leadership of Israel said, you do your miracles by the power of the devil. And that was it. That was the ultimate rejection. So, associated with the glorious advent of the king, this future, and in these parables, the king returns with great power. Power glorious. And this Jesus is speaking about. Then, and he's going to speak about it clearly as well. That when he returns, flashing forth east to west, this is the return of him to establish his kingdom on earth. So where did we start today? Satan said, worship me, I'll give you the kingdoms of the earth. 
Jesus, in essence, is saying, I'm after a different kingdom. I don't care about that kingdom. I worship the Lord as a man, here as a weak man in front of you, the one I created, Satan. I created you, but I sit here in humility before you, allowing you to tempt me because I also want to fill my kingdom with people. And uh, as I look around here on earth, not that I had to come down and check, but ain't none of them good. (laughs) Not a one. And yet, I want to fill my kingdom with them. They ain't too wise. They ain't too noble. They ain't too mighty. But I'm going to fill my kingdom with them. And it's going to be glorious. What kingdom are you after, Satan? Ah, the one where I'm king. And, you know, this kingdom's given. I can give it to anybody I wish. I'm the man. And hence, all in the world who have that attitude when they're presented with, you're a sinner and you need a savior. They don't want anything to do with that. I'm not saying that the proud can't be saved because then none of us would be saved. But there is a definite um, revelation of God to all of us through his scripture that the arrogant, prideful, lustful world that rejects God. Now, for those of us who accepted God, we were lustful, prideful, stupid sinners who accepted him. And then after we accepted him by faith, we still found that we had problems with lust and sin and pride. Now, the parables, I was going to summarize them. I kind of summarized them real quick. And I know this is far too quick. But it's the detail of this is not what we're after. What we're after here is the whole reason why God is doing this. So after the series of parables, all of them urge, like in the virgins, you have your your ready. Some have said, well, the five virgins of this and the other five virgins of this. Christ doesn't tell us any of that. You're reading too much into it. Some are ready and some aren't. And what he's telling us is, be ready. He's going to tell us this as church age believers, and he's going to tell them that in the tribulation, to be ready. But these parables that he speaks of are for the tribulational generation. And then he makes it clear. Go to Matthew. Go back to Matthew 25, 31. But when the Son of Man comes in his glory, this is after he has taught all these parables, Matthew 25, 31. And when the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before Him, and He will separate them one from another as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats, and He will put the sheep on His right and the goats on His left. And then He's going to ask them some questions. We can get into that at another time. But have you noticed, this is... Not, I mean, it may kind of look like the final judgment in the great white throne of the wicked dead as it is, but it looks like here that when the Son of Man comes in his glory, all the nations will be gathered before him that they're living at the time. 
And therefore, this is his judgment at the second coming. And how he's going to ask them, how have you treated my believers during this awful time on earth, the tribulation? Did you give water and shelter and clothes to those who had none? That's what he's going to ask them. So, to us, the kingdom of Old Testament prophecy, so much of it written, the kingdom uh, that is prophesied to Israel who were really in possession of it, you know, of of the, the nation that was of the kingdom to come. Now, when Christ establishes his kingdom, it's not a generic kingdom. It's Israel. It is the nation of Israel. And all the nations come to her to worship the Lord. Israel, Jerusalem, becomes what God always designed it to be. And we see kings, bad ones, who reject the temple who reject the law, who reject God. Just like we saw Rehoboam, he's one of many. And so this drama of you worship the Lord or do you worship yourself? You worship the Lord, do you want his kingdom or do you want some other kingdom of your own making or that is offered to you from this world? When Jesus came, he said... And he told his disciples when he sent them out, Mary, he sent those 70 out, he said, go to the towns of Israel and tell them that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He said it himself, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. What is this kingdom that's at hand? Well, it's the one that was held off. Right? The kingdom of heaven is at hand and he offers it to Israel. They could have accepted it. But they did not. And through the unbelief of Israel... Its arrival, the arrival of the kingdom, would not be set for the first advent. Of course, God knew this in eternity past, but it plays out in time. It has to. That the arrival is not set for the first advent, but for the second. This glorious, I'm leaving, I'm going to leave the house in your hands. There's going to be good servants and bad servants. All right? Now, don't get me wrong. Of course, of course, you know this, that I'm not teaching that there are, you know, all the good ones are believers and all the bad ones are unbelievers, you know. But Christ doesn't get into that kind of nitpicking, you know, as we tend to. It's just for all of us as believers, what God is, and it, we see it in the epistles over and over, that God is telling us, look, you're of something that is fantastic and wonderful that God has earned with the death of his son. Don't you want to be a part of it? That's how he motivates us. Don't you, don't you want to know and live in this kingdom? And you know, I, 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 I know people who I think are believers who basically say no uh, to that question. But, you know, the person that I'm most concerned with is myself in saying no. And I have said no as a believer. You know, looking back, I've said no. But yet God is patient with us. He's forgiven us. 
He takes our burdens away. He does not make us pay, pay, pay for the sins of the past and the stupidness that we were. And he says, well, do you get it yet? And if you do, don't you want to follow it? So, in this time that we're in, there's a lot of bad stuff going on. Because the king came to his own. His own said no. And here in Luke, Luke 21:24, he said, Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles. That's the destruction of the city in 70 AD by the Romans. Until... The times of the Gentiles are fulfilled, and those times are still going on. The times of the Gentile will not be fulfilled until Christ returns and establishes the kingdom of Israel, as he sits on David's throne as her true king. I mean, it's no mistake that uh, Pilate had written King of the Jews on the plaque in three different languages, in Greek, Aramaic, and Hebrew, right there on him, but above him. This is the king of the Jews. Jesus of Nazareth, king of the Jews. It's significant that it's in three languages. It's in the Jewish language, Aramaic, which is a common Jewish language, and Greek, which is the Gentile language. Now, when Jesus begins his Passion Week, and he comes into this final conflict with Israel's rulers, there are some parables that are for his disciples, like the fig tree. Uh, you know, he's telling them to be ready, be alert. The, the virgins, the talents, keep working, keep laboring in my kingdom until I come. You don't know when I'm coming. When the master comes, I'm going to say, what would you do with the talents I gave you? And so that's to them. But to the leadership... He would teach parables, the other parables, the parables of the two sons. The father had a vineyard, and he said to one son, go into the vineyard. And the son said, I will, but he decided not to go. He told the other son, go into the vineyard and work. And the other son said, no, I'm not going to go. Then he thought better of it, and he went. Which one did the will of his father? You know, like it's the easiest parable to interpret. Obviously, the one who went, even though he initially said no. That's pointed right at the leadership. That, the wedding, the king's wedding feast, the wicked vine growers are so obvious about them. Even in when he told that parable, they said, uh, this one's about us. They, it was easy to figure it out. And then they, they had convened. This all happens this final week. They convened meetings. There's Herodians who are like political leaders that are infiltrated into the religious leaders, Sadducees and and Pharisees, they get together and they say, well, what can we do about him? He's so popular. And they say, you know what we'll do? We'll trap him in his words. So they set up all these traps. People go ask him questions. They start their questions with, good teacher. Well, you know, this guy had, uh, this woman had a, husband, he died, then she married his brother and he died, then she married his other brother and he died, then he married his other brother and he died. (laughs) Yeah, this happens every day. She's killing them. Who's she married to in heaven? Stuff like that. Or 
Should we pay taxes to Caesar or not? And he says, give me a coin. Whose picture is on that? Right? And so every response he has, they're like, and the people are listening. And they say, say this, go to Matthew twenty-two thirty-three. See, because this is what his kingdom is about. Um, it's about so many things. But one of the things is wisdom. But who is wise among us? The proud? Those who think they know everything? Especially, and I've been saying a lot about this, when it comes to eschatology, there's definite group of Christians who are very sure that they got the whole thing down pat, and God forbid you disagree with them, because you will see tooth and claw come out against you. Do we really know everything? No, we don't know much. <laughs> but we're wise if we're humble. Matthew twenty-two thirty-three. When the crowds heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. See, with the Pharisees, Sadducees, and all the other guys, they set up to trap Jesus and to vindicate themselves, and it had the opposite effect. They wanted to tarnish his reputation, have him lose face in front of the people. And the people heard him. And Jesus would say to his disciples in this teaching that when they drag you before the magistrates, when they threaten you and throw you in prison, don't worry about what you're going to say. The Holy Spirit will give you the utterance that will... Be so wise, they won't have a refutation. And all that means is we've got to be humble and trust, which has always been the way of worshiping God. So, then the Lord turns. This all happens on the same day, by the way. And he's, he's preparing us, the writers of the Gospels are preparing us for the kingdom come and for living in this time called the birth pang time where we're going to be persecuted, we're going to be tempted and things, depending on what generation you're in and where you are, it could be fairly easy as a Christian life, you know, without much uh, going on around you. Like our lives are, we shake our fist at the nation in Washington and all of that, but, you know, our lives are not, it's not like you're living in North Korea as a Christian or in China. But, you know, all of us are going to face tribulation. All of us, no matter whether you have it real hard or easy, uh, you're going to be tempted by the flesh and by the world. And then Jesus is going to ask them a question. We'll deal with that tomorrow. He's going to say, okay, I've answered all your trivial tic-tac-y questions that you thought you were going to trap me in, which were stupid. Now I'm going to ask you a question. And, you know, he could ask the question and some question that would totally befuddle them, which this question does. And embarrass them, which this question does. But it's not, the question is not for the purpose of embarrassing them. It is totally for the purpose of teaching. 
and the question, which they refuse to answer because they don't know how to answer it, is a question that you and I can answer easily. And we can answer it. And if we know it and we know him, we answer it with love. Like, oh, I know the answer to that. And and it's an answer that I love because I love him. And this is truly what it becomes about because the kingdom that you love is only made by this man, Jesus. He's the only one to make it. He's the only God-man. So he's the only mediator between heaven and earth. He's the only bread from heaven. He's the only uh, savior. He's the only sacrificial lamb. He's the only lamb slain before the foundation of the world. He's the only king of kings. He's the only son of David. What other titles would we like? He's the only one. And it's his kingdom that we're after. So what kingdom did he love? Jesus. What kingdom was he after? And who did he want to be in it? What was his position? And what kingdoms are the Pharisees interested in? Now, what kind? You could say everybody on the earth. You know, what were the Greeks into? What did the Romans want? You know, what did people in general want? But what do people today want? And really, the application to us is, of course, what do you want? What do you want your kingdom to be? And what's your place in it? What kingdoms are you interested in? Kingdoms are you interested in? You know, and if you're interested in it and you long for it, you find yourself worshiping the king. And worship means stand in awe of him, honor him, his sovereignty. Knowing that you don't know everything about him, but he knows everything about you. And that's fine. Longing to pray, you know, that will develop. Seeing the opportunity to pray to be a time where, oh, it's just a wonderful time to be alone with my father and, and, and ask him anything and everything that I need to know, that I want to know, and, and intercede for others, of course. And all of that points to, you know, what you're interested in. What do you love? What kingdom do you love? So when Satan said, ah, these kingdoms are mine and I can give them to everybody I want, anybody I want, don't forget Jesus' response. Worship the Lord your God. Serve the Lord your God and worship him only. All right, let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your word and your uh, the awesome testimony of our Lord and the Gospels here. May we, as we continue to pursue it, see in him the development and the truth concerning the kingdom come where your will will be done. May we seek it now in our own hearts, and our own lives, and long for it in the future. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.